All right, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you that we can gather again on a new day, uh, a day where your mercies are new up upon us, the sun is rising, we're, we experience your, your grace and mercy, even in just giving us life, and, but also minds that we can use to, to think about your word to us and the world that you made and how we can honor you and serve you and serve others in the, in the world that you've made and, in, and with who you've made us to be and how you've gifted us and, I pray that as we think as we think about our work today and what you've called us to, and um, that you would be reshaping our thinking and our our desires and our um, emotions, so that we would rightly rightly understand and and rightly desire to to serve you in the ways that you've given us to do. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Here we are, week three of our class on work and vocation. Some of you have been with us the whole time, others you might be jumping in, but here we're at week three, we're going to be considering the dignity of work. So last week we talked about the design of work, and we specifically looked at how we serve a God who works. In fact, the first introduction we have to God, the very first thing we hear about God is actually that He's a creator, that He's working, and we saw that creating was... A work that he did actually over six days with a, then a, a day of rest. That even though obviously God has infinite power and could have just created the world in an instant, uh, for reasons we saw last week, he actually created the world over a span of six days. And that work of six days and one day of rest, that actually forms a, a model that God then gives to us and say, you are to do likewise, you are to work for six days and to rest. And there's a rhythm there in the work and rest that is actually how God designed us to, to function and to flourish as, as humans. And we saw that God actually said that His work was good. It wasn't like God settled for second best and made a physical world when, and that it, there's, there's nothing bad about the physical world that God made. That, you know, God made it, it He Himself is good, and he made a good world. You almost we talked about almost as though God was like a a, um, a a craftsman who fashions this beautiful object and then looks back on it each day and says it's good. You know, it was good. Now you hear that repeated refrain through Genesis one that he looked and he saw and it was good. And then at the end we saw that it was very good, and um, that he actually then rested from his work and just enjoyed the fruits of his labor in a sense. So we're introduced to God. The first thing we see about him is that he's a, a skillful and creative worker. And that really forms the, the foundation for why work is actually a good thing. That it's not, not a bad thing. It's not something that, just, that we have to do because of the fall, because of sin. That God actually is a worker and that gives us the design for our work. So today we're going to be looking at the dignity of work. And... You know, you, this may be self-evident, uh, you may think of this already, but just let it sink in for a moment that we serve a God who took on human flesh as a carpenter and spent, spent his time working with his hands. Remember in Mark chapter 6, the Jews actually rejected Jesus or looked down upon him, looked upon him as, as someone common, because they said, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. You know, Jesus came into the world as a carpenter. You know, if you were to, if you didn't know that about God, and you were to think, well, 
how would how would God come into the world? If God is to come into the world as king, how would he come into the world? You, you probably wouldn't think of you know a common laborer or someone working with his hands. You know, you might think some divine ruler, maybe maybe a philosopher, maybe a king, maybe a, a statesman or a politician, somebody who would be esteemed and who would rule with justice and you know and be recognized. But he came into the world as a carpenter. He worked with his hands. So that in itself, that fact alone, shows us that work itself is, is a dignified thing, something that we should not at all feel is beneath us as our status as humans. If God himself took on human flesh and worked, how can we look down upon any form of work? And that's going to be our kind of our main point today, that work of all kinds, whether it's with the hands or the mind or some combination you know, between physical and mental, emotional, all... Basically, as, as humans, the things that we do with uh, to work, it, it actually reflects our dignity as human beings. And that's because it's going to be rooted in the fact that the image of God, that we were created in the image of God. He's a creator. He works. He fashions things. He builds things. He designs things. He sustains things. And we are made in His image. So therefore, our work also has inherent dignity. So, the, the two big ideas we're going to trace the first half of the class today, we'll, just, we'll talk about what it means that we're made in the image of God. And we're going to look start in Genesis 1, and then we're going to look through the rest of the Bible and see what, what this means, that we were made in the image of God. And then we're also going to think about the resurrection, and specifically the fact that Jesus was resurrected into, an, into a body. He had a glorified body. In some ways it was different than ours, but it was still a physical body. He... He took on flesh, and it wasn't like he became a spirit. In fact, several times he tells him, "Look, I'm not a spirit." And he he had a he had an embodied life, and that shows us actually that this world it matters. That it's not um, it's not something that we're going to escape someday or or um, do away with someday. So, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to start in Genesis one. Uh, you could, I guess, you, I have the verse on the screen, so you could also just read up here. But if you want to, you can open your Bibles. Last week we looked at Genesis one, and you know the we saw that repeated pattern. God does some; He says something. He says, "Let there be light." He says, "Let there be a separation between this, the the waters." You know, he, God speaks. He does something, and then He reflects on it and says that it's good, and then. The narrative kind of slows down a bit at the towards the end on the sixth day. You remember he started the sixth day, he made the animals and the beasts that went about on the ground, and then it slows down. And actually, we have this a, a unique feature in this account where God actually, we hear God speaking in a more of an extended way. This is what we see in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. I'll just read it. Uh, actually, or maybe one of you can read it for me. And as you, as you read it, just think, remember Hebrew... Poetry or Hebrew narrative will often use repetition to make a make a point. Something they want you to, to get, they'll repeat. So listen for the repetition. And if someone would is awake enough to read these for us, go for it. And God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, 
of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that lives on the earth. Thanks, Craig. Remember what um, Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter 3? Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were... What was it about? What was it that he did um, in order to honor himself? Remember, he he built a he built a statue. He built an image. It was a huge image. You know, I don't I can't remember the dimensions, but it was very it was a tall golden image. And he told everyone to come and bow down to worship that image. That was actually a common thing in that day. That kings, rulers, would set up an image of themselves. For people to honor. I mean, you see that even today. I mean, you see, you know, pictures, portraits of of our rulers on in uh, capital buildings and things like that. But in those days, they would often make an image of themselves to uh, commemorate themselves and to give them honor themselves honor. So it's interesting. You know, we're actually told not one of the Ten Commandments was not to make an image of God, but we're told here in Genesis one that God actually made an image of Himself, and it's not a statue of gold. It's, it's us. We are the image of God that he, he created. You see, that, I mean, I, I mentioned the repetition. You know, it, you see that over and over again in verse 26, let us make man in our image. There's once in 27, he says it twice more. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So it's clearly something that we're meant to um, take away from here, that God made humanity, humans, in his image. This is something unique from the rest of the creation. You know, we might even just take it this for granted a little bit in our society where you know the the this, this is really the foundation of our constitution that man is made in God's image endowed with our creator with certain rights which that's not been the norm in the history of the earth it's actually a very unique concept I mean, in terms of how governments are structured and nations are structured but it's really just built into our society that we you know, we have human rights well that well, the reason we even have human rights is because we were made in the image of God, what is? I'll let you guys chime in. What I mean, the but you notice here, he, he says he's going to make God in his image, but then he doesn't really define it. He doesn't say, you know, this is exactly how you're made in the image of God. And this is something that you know, people much smarter than me have written books and books about. So there's a lot that could be said there. But what is? What do you think of? What do you? What do you think um, is intended when it says that we're made in the image of God? What is it about us that's that images God in a sense. We have different attributes like traits, like love and um, kindness and patience. Love, yeah, and maybe what you're getting at, Geraldine, is there's uh, we have a moral compass where we're created as moral beings that we, you know, we have a capacity for for all of these things that God actually is too, goodness and love and kindness and justice, although you're right, it's all corrupted now because of sin, but we actually have that capacity as moral beings. What, what else? How else are we made in the image of God? I think we inherently know what is right versus wrong. Yeah. We have a conscience that guides us. Yeah, we have a conscience. What else? Emotion. Emotion? You mean emotions didn't start after the fall, Johnny? <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, emotions are good. Uh, God, God made them. <laughs> uh, you know, God Himself. We're, it's it's hard for us to comprehend that because God is unchanging. He he's not subject to whims. He doesn't. 
it doesn't make react emotionally like we do sometimes in our creaturely fallenness. But um, God does have emotions. You're right. Work. Work. Yeah, that's obviously maybe that's a no-brainer since that's what the class is about. But <laughs> we see that um, we're going to see that that you know I think we don't we don't want to disconnect. 26 and 27 where it says three, three times that God made us in His image and then verse 28 where He gives them a commission, something to do. Um, you know, you can see in that not only we're going to get into the fact that it's working, but also even be fruitful and multiply. That God is the giver of life. He creates life. We saw that all through Genesis 1. But, and then He gives this responsibility to us to have children, to, to be fruitful, to multiply I'm going to just say fruitful, or maybe I should say children. Anything else? Agency. Did I did I hear agency? Agency. Agency. What is that? What do you mean, Ashton? Like at least compared to all other creation, we have the mind to make choices and right decisions. So yeah, we're rational, volitional beings, right? I mean, maybe animals to some degree have these things, but certainly not to the capacity that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rule or governing. Yeah, we have the capacity to self-govern, even which is, you know, they're just other humans governing each other. Why um. that eternal soul? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, eternal, eternal being, eternal soul. Yeah, so there's a lot you could see that, you know, a lot of ways that we are made in God's image. And broadly speaking, I think we can both think of this, in, you can think of these as both who we are, as the kind of being that we are. We're rational, moral, emotional being, eternal being, but also then what we were created to do. Both our form, who we are, and our function, what we do. And those, those two things really aren't, aren't separated. God made us to who we are so that we could do what we do. That is, so, so that we could be fruitful, so that we could multiply, so that we could fill the earth, so that we could subdue the earth and take dominion over it. We just went to Monterey this week, and we went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And, you know, many of you have probably been there, or at least you've heard of it. But, you know, here we have humans that are both, um, you know, they're studying the fish of the sea, um, the birds of the heavens, living things. They're, they're studying them, they're caring for them, they're helping them. It's, uh, you know, I think just reflecting on one way that we were made in the image of God. So let's look in closer at this verse 28, which um, is sometimes called the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. But here we see God giving a commission, a, a command to... Or uh, it's not necessarily a command, I suppose, cause, but he's, he's stating the purpose that we, he wanted us to fulfill. Uh, he blessed them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but this really forms the, the foundation for really the work of human society. Really, everything that goes into creating a human culture, a human society, can be broadly fit into these categories. That as humans, God made us to, to, you know, to have more humans, to have children, and then to fill the earth with them. And then not just to run around and just, you know, exist on this planet, but actually do stuff here to, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, which 
you know, we can see that even in, you know, just seeing how humans form civilization, how we form institutions, how we uh, form cities. Uh, obviously, all of these things now are fraught with corruption, but those things in and of themselves are not sinful. They're not a result of the fall. That God actually intended for us to, to function that way in the world. You know, those of you who have had children, or you probably can relate to this experience that, you know, when you have a new baby or a, new, a small person, you know, you, it's just an amazing, amazing to reflect on this new life that didn't exist before, and then now it does exist. And, you know, God, uh, in Genesis 1, God is the one who breathes the breath of life into Adam and Eve. But ever since then, He's given that responsibility to humans, to together, a, a man and a woman creating a new human life. You know, this is a way that we are imaging God. In, in obedience, whether we know it or not, humans are, are obeying this commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know, we know that where the story goes, and actually, I think it's in Genesis 6 or 7, talking about the flood, where God said, man saw, God saw man, and they had actually filled the earth with violence. So, you know, we know that we don't live up to this, that when that God made us as His image, to reflect Him, to reflect His character, His glory, His goodness. That's what we were to fill the earth with. Society of humans that are flourishing, that are thriving, that are reflecting God's glory and His character in their society and their culture, which, you know, it's hard for us even, sometimes even, you know, we tend to associate a lot of these symbols of culture with, with sin and um, corruption because they're so fraught with it, but that's not the original intent. And so we see even even before the fall, God had given them a command to have dominion over the earth. So Tim Keller said this in his book, um, Every Good Endeavor. He says, God left creation with deep, untapped potential for cultivation that people were to unlock through their labor. So it's not as though Adam and Eve were to just sit around and let the garden just produce stuff for them. There was actually, in God's good world that he made, there was work to be done. They had to to cultivate the garden. They had to care for it. Let me jump ahead. Let's see. So we saw last week how God worked. Does anyone remember? Just spat out. Um, how did we? What are some of the things that we saw God doing when He worked in Genesis one? What are some of the verbs that we saw? Speaking. Speaking. Separating. Separating. Forming or creating. There's also He was saw, seeing. He was. He was judging. What was that, Neil? Brought. Brought. Yeah, he was. He was both forming the world, but also he was judging and kind of discerning and and uh, making decisions and planning. So there was both mental work and physical work. Um, and then we also saw that God worked in the rest throughout the rest of Scripture. It's not as though God just created the world and let it go, but He's actually governing and sustaining and caring for the world. He's He's watering the earth. He's feeding the animals. He's he's governing all things, which is what Jesus said in John five seventeen that my Father is always working. Um, God God is is governing and caring for the world, which you know we we call theologically we call that providence. So in creation, He's building, designing, shaping, planning, organizing, naming things. He named the the light uh, the when he, he named the day and He named the the land and. He's separating, and then he continues, we see throughout the rest of Scripture, governing, gardening, in that sense that he's watering the earth, maintaining the earth. Some of these things are, are actually necessary because of the fall, but this is what we saw about God, the way that he works. Now let's think about 
Adam. If you turn to Genesis 2, we can look at the work that God gave Adam to do. Again, remember, this is before the fall. So sin's not in the world. Corruption is not in the world. And God gave Adam work to do. So in Genesis 2, starting at verse 4, we see... We read this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now, what you see in verse 5 is almost an aside. Like it's, it's not even the, necessarily the flow of the main, the main narrative here. But the aside here says that the, the earth was not producing plants and it was not being cultivated yet. Because, and this gives two reasons. It says the Lord God had not caused it to rain and there was no man to work the ground. Which, even that in itself just tells us that God's intention was for Adam, for man, to work the ground. That wasn't, it wasn't part of the curse that he had to work the ground. It was God's plan all along for Adam to work the ground. Which, if you look down at verse 15, you see then God making that more explicit. In verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then he commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see those two uh, verbs there, to work, in verse 15. He took the man, he put him in the garden, and then he he gave him two, two responsibilities. To work the garden and to keep the garden. Working, I think, has in view the idea of like of cultivating, of planting, of harvesting, of of caring for the ground itself, the garden itself. It needed his work to in order to be productive, in order to be fruitful. And keeping has in view it could also be translated guarding, that same Hebrew word, keep or guard. So it's almost like the idea of keeping out anything that was dangerous or harmful, protecting it it from anything that would would prevent it from being fruitful and and fulfilling its purpose. Um, it's interesting actually in Three, chapter 324, after the fall, after Adam, you remember, had failed to keep and protect the garden, he'd let, there was a serpent that came in that deceived Eve, and you know, we know where, where it goes from there, but in 324, we're told that the cherubim was placed with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way. The same word is used there, it's just translated differently, it's guard or keep. So, Adam actually, we see right away, he fails at that commission to keep, and a cherubim was placed there to guard the way to the tree of life. But still, that was his original commission, was to, to, to keep it, to protect it, and to cultivate it, and to work the ground. In 18 through 20, we see a little bit more about the work that God gave him to do. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the bigger picture there is going to be the creation of woman as a helper for man. 
But even here we see some of the work that God gave Adam to do. Remember in Genesis 1, it was God who was calling things. He was, he was naming things. God called the, the light day. He called the darkness night. But God didn't call the animals. He didn't name the animals. He brought the animals to Adam. And Adam called them. He named them. So here we see him, Adam, also working in the same fashion as God did. And I think even in Gen- so even between these passages, you can see really the, the foundation for when it, our work, you know, whatever our field is, it, it's going to involve some amount of physical and mental labor. You know, some more physical. Even the physical labor, though, requires mental um, engagement and, and also mental labor, which involves physical. I mean, we're not, we can't separate them completely, but we see a spectrum here where Adam is both to work the ground, which would be more of a physical labor of, of caring for it, tilling it, cultivating it, but also naming the creatures, calling them names. So he's, that's more of a mental task of coming up with names and, and uh, observing the animals, which I think even there you see the foundation for what we call science today, of, of studying the natural world, of, of naming things, of coming up, of understanding the world. So here we see Genesis 2, we see Adam working in ways very similar to how God worked in Genesis 1. Any questions or anything we've said so far? So in Psalm 8, it's the Psalm of David, you could turn there, or I guess I've got it all, I've got the whole thing up right here. So Psalm 8, um, David reflects on God's creation. And maybe some of you had this experience, you know, out away from the city lights, or you know, just really anywhere where you can take in the grandeur of creation, you know, see the stars on on a moonless night out in the mountains, or, you know, just something like the Grand Canyon, something where you just feel your smallness and God's bigness. Now, you think about that, and David is is reflecting on that. Um, And he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, which remember in Genesis 1, the stars are just like a afterthought. It's almost like God made the moon and the sun and, oh, and he made the stars. You know, those billions of galaxies that we get to study. for. He made the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And then verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? So, you know, why does God spend, you know, he makes the stars, the moon, this beautiful, glorious creation, and yet he focuses his love and a care and attention on humanity, on you and I, you know, feeble, small, little creatures. (laughs) You know, verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. That's Genesis 1.28. He's reflecting on the fact that God made this beautiful, glorious world, and then he gives man dominion over it. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is... Fairly alarming. We don't want to take that just too um, too lightly. The fact that God is, you know, this world that is so much bigger. We're still finding out new things about it, both 
on the macroscopic level of how what's out there and how big the universe is and all that's there, and then also on the microscopic level, all that's there, we still don't even understand uh, some of the, the details of molecular level and, and everything in between. It's a wonderful, beautiful creation. Yet God gave us, humans, dominion over this world to, to care for it, to subdue it, to cultivate it. So, so it actually speaks to the glory and the honor. He says you crowned him with glory and honor. Man, who we are as made in God's image, have an inherent glory and honor. But as we all know, the world we live in, and even ourselves, if you know yourself, you know that we fall so far short of this calling this, that God has made for us. If you can put on your theological thinking caps for just a second, uh, if you haven't had them on yet, if they've been off, you know, put them on. <laughs> Genesis 128, we saw God made man in his image and he gave him this commission, which then David reflects on in Psalm 8, 6 and says, you know, you've made man, you've given him dominion over the work of your hands. In the New Testament, Psalm 8, 6 is in both in in two places, in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Hebrews 2, New Testament authors look to Psalm 8, 6 and they quote it and they use it to refer to Jesus. Not to humans in general, as it appears David was reflecting on the fact that humans, were, all humans were made in the image of God, they're given dominion over the earth. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians and the author of Hebrews, quotes that psalm and sees that Christ was the fulfillment of that psalm. So look in, in 1 Corinthians 15, this is in a part of his larger discourse on the, the resurrection. But he comments, he says, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and in his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, that is, Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For... God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So, what is going on here? Did Paul misunderstand Psalm 8? You see right here, verse 27, where it's in quotes, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's actually, you know, it's, it's, you know, we have to remember there's language things going on here where Psalm 8 was written in Hebrew and it's translated into Greek, the Septuagint, which I think is what Paul is quoting here. So when it says God has put all things in subjection, it's the same um, idea and the same... He's quoting from the scripture that says, what did it say in Psalm 8? Uh, You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. That that um, 6a right here in the from the Greek is what Paul is quoting when he says, um, you have, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So I think what, what Paul is doing here you know, he's not. I don't think he's misunderstanding David, and he's not even necessarily saying that David had some secondary, secondary meaning or deeper meaning that was it. But what he's doing here is he's seeing. He looks back at even to Genesis one and sees the, the exalted status that God gave to humans to to take dominion over the world. They were crowned with glory and honor. This you know this world that was such a beautiful, glorious world. We were put in a position to have dominion and rule over that world. And then he sees all the ways that we've messed up. The ways that we've sinned, we've fallen from that. That's what he said in Romans 3.23. We've fallen short 
of the glory of God, this standard that God had made for humanity. We'd fallen short of it. Um, and then he reflects on the fact that Jesus came, and he didn't come as, you know, as a new species of being. He didn't come as you know, half God, half human. He came as a human. He came as a man. He took on human flesh, and in doing so, he fulfilled the intention of what it was to be human. What God intended for us in Genesis 1, to take dominion, to rule, to subdue the earth, Jesus fulfills that perfectly. Only, he doesn't just fulfill it, he fulfills it even greater than our original intention, because in Genesis one twenty six and 28, there was no sin in the world, there was no death in the world. Jesus not only rules over the natural created world, uh, all things are in subjection to him, but also he destroys sin and death. So, all this to say, if you see this pro- progression of thought, you know, we have a God, we have creation, God made us a certain way, we fell from that purpose, and then Jesus himself fulfills that purpose. He is, in a sense, the true human, in that he truly fulfills in himself what, what humanity was made to be. And it doesn't stop there. You know, he does that himself, that's who he is, but then he gathers to himself fallen, sinful creatures and restores that image that was lost. The image, you know, it's never, it's never lost completely. We, we all, we're still made in the image of God, although every part of our being is corrupted by sin. But Jesus then gathers to himself a people who are being renewed after the image of their creator. That's what, you'll see this, if you're thinking about this, you'll see this crop up in different places throughout the New Testament where Paul's saying things like in Colossians 3 where he's giving them moral instruction, do not lie to another, you put off the old self with its practices, now put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That you were made in the image of God, you're fallen from that status, that glorious status of being in the image of God, but now you're being renewed to that. Um, and even better, because it's not as though you were just never broken. You were made in that image, then you were broken, and now you're restored to it. You're renewed into the image of God. Which he does, we also know, through conforming us. This is what God is doing in all of our lives. He's conforming us to the image of his Son, as you see in Romans eight twenty-nine. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, let me just show a slide to hopefully put all that together. A table, I mean. In creation, we have the image of God reflected in Adam and Eve, where God said, let us make man in our image, and gave them a responsibility, a calling to take dominion over the earth. We fell from that. We didn't fulfill that, that calling. We, instead of filling the earth with God's glory, we fill the earth with violence and sin and corruption. So he sends Jesus, who is the true king, who is the perfect and true image of God. That's what Colossians 1.15, he is the image of God. And he takes dominion perfectly. He's put all things in subjection to Jesus. He is the ruler over all. In that sense, he's fulfilling the original purpose that God had given to Adam and Eve. But then he also gathers to himself a people who are being shaped into the image of God by being conformed to the image of Jesus, Romans 8.29. And then if you go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22 and you see hints of it in other places as well, but Revelation 22, we're told specifically that this people that are gathered to Jesus as his bride, that they will reign forever 
and ever. It's not just that Jesus reigns. He does reign. But this people that he's gathered to himself, they reign with him. Any questions on that overview? Well, maybe some of you have some objections that you don't want to say. (laughs) Objection! Are you saying that Billy Bob is made in the image of God? (laughs) By that I mean, you insert the name there, but you you could insert your own name if you're being honest with yourself. But um, any other person that you work with, that you come in contact with, that is difficult, ornery, sinful, corrupt, you name it, is that, is that really what we're saying? Like all, all of these regular, ordinary people that are made in the image of God? They're actually images of God? The God that we can't see? Or the, well, how would you, maybe some of you, maybe you have the objection, but how would you respond to that objection? I feel like that's what gives humans value as opposed to any other animal or anything else in the world. So having that knowledge of Regardless of how you act, you are made in the image of God, and so I'm going to treat you with respect, regardless of how you treat one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about all the terrible things people do? I mean, they really made in the image of God when you see people that are just, they hate God, they live their own way, they uh, or they just like descend into the depths, and you know, all the... the even if it's not like blatant defiance of God, but just the apathy and indifference and laziness and you know all of that, how can we say that all of humans are made in the image of God? How do we how do we put these things together or reconcile that? Well, we all are, but it's only by God's grace that those of us that have come to know Him can even reflect any of that. So, I mean, all of those people that are turning from him and, and refusing to see um, I mean it's just because of the corruption of sin and the further away they push themselves you know the, the worse it's going to be but yeah. it doesn't negate the fact that that originally there was the image of God there yeah and, and that they're not without the ability to be saved still right yeah go ahead Ray I like, I like to think about like some of Van Gogh's paintings like people uh, say that he put a lot of himself into these paintings, right? But uh, after he passed away, some people were like using his paintings for target practice with, for archery because they didn't they didn't see the value in them, you know. And it's like it isn't as though God didn't put a lot of himself into us in, in, in his creation of us, but that doesn't mean that we all see that necessarily. Yeah, value it the same. Yeah. Do you want to add something, Craig? Yeah. In regard with Janelle, um, you have to think about when did that corruption begin? How were they raised? What were their parents like? Because that makes a, a massive impact on who we are now. Yeah. Yeah, and I would... Um, I would just say that the, uh, the injection unveils the problem that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? <laughs> what do you mean? Mm-hmm. To ask the question is to indict yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. Of the, of the problem that we have as humans and reflecting God's image. Yeah, yeah, and I think part of what we wrestle with here, I mean, the reason humans are capable of such atrocities is because we are rational, moral beings. We have capacity for great good, and for volition and reason and emotion. All of these, we, we were created with such capacity for good 
um, that Satan has corrupted and turned, and sin has corrupted and turned to evil, that at the same time we can we can do great evil. C.S. Lewis said, "You have never talked to a mere mortal." He says, "There are no ordinary people." It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Yeah, everyone around us, even the common people that you run into in your workplace, they are made in the image of God. Whether they're living up to that, I mean, obviously sin has corrupted that, but as we start to get that into our thinking, it, it changes how we look at people. What about the work itself, though? You know, are you saying, here's objection number two. You know, maybe you're sitting there thinking this. Are you saying that I'm taking dominion of the earth by cleaning Susie's teeth? or filling out accident reports from drunk drivers. How do you, you know, a lot of the work, we're going to get into this more later, but a lot of the work that we do, it may seem ordinary, it may seem mundane, it may seem pointless. How do we reconcile that with this, you know, this talk of being made in the image of God and taking dominion of the earth? How would you respond to that objection or concern? In the in the context even of the two examples that you throw up around the board, you see one where you're they're both aiding humanity and helping to take the mini of the earth and make it a better place for people, right? The example of the dentist, you're helping to sustain and keep the value that's inherent in people made in God's image, you're helping their lives to continue on and because of this the first world they need intervention in order to prevent things from falling into a state of disorder. Then the accident reports you're helping the safety of others by attempting to curtail acts of sin that are particularly egregious that have ramifications on many other people more than just the person involved. Right. Yeah, we're going to talk, think more specifically as the time goes on about how the curse has affected all of everything. But it's affected our work itself, our workplace, the people we work with ourselves, our society, all of it's been corrupted by sin. But we can still see vestiges of the goodness of our work. Um, you know, we may not, there may be days that go by where you, you just, you think the whole day was a waste of time or pointless or, you know, fraught with conflict. And, you, you know, it may be hard to remember that or believe that. But there are other times when you just see glimpses of something that went well or when you accomplished something and you can see that there's good even in, even in the midst of the corruption. So, to summarize, in regard to the image of God, um, our original creation mandate was to take dominion of the earth, to fill it with the glory of God as His image bearers. And that actually does not change by the fact that we become Christians. It's not like we become less human or become a different race of being. You know, we're still humans. Um, we're saved, we're renewed, we're, we're united to Christ. But And that actually... Our union with Christ and our salvation, it enables us to truly fulfill this, this mandate as we're united to Christ who is himself the image of God and the one who lived as a perfect human. So as Christians, we do not become less human, but actually renewed humans. And that calling, Genesis 1, to fill the earth with his glory, um, to take dominion, that, that is actually still our design. We're made in that image of God that we're made to to be it is not changed by the gospel. The gospel restores us to God's original design. So this divinely given role of stewardship and governance over creation gives to our work an inherent dignity. We don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to dive in, and I'll do it a little more briefly this time. But there's a lot more that could be said here. You know, if, in case we're wondering, you know, did 
the world, does this word really, really, world really matter? You know, maybe, as was common in the New Testament, um, even among believers thinking, maybe we're just trying to escape this world. Maybe God is, wants us to go live in, as, in a spiritual existence away from the world. Luke 24, Jesus now is resurrected and he's appearing to his disciples and he says to them, have you anything here to eat? It's interesting Luke would even record this. I mean, this is kind of a mundane detail. They asked for anything to eat. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. I mean, Luke, I think, recorded this. If you go back a few verses before in the narrative, it says that they thought he was a ghost. And he says, I'm not a spirit. You know, and he, and he explains to them who he is. Uh, and then he asks them for something to eat. And I think Luke recorded records this specifically so that he would um, you know, nip this wrong thinking in the bud that Jesus had a physical body. He, it was glorified. It was different in some way so that they, they weren't sure if it was him. You know, they almost didn't recognize him. They were afraid to ask him who he was, it says in John. But he had a physical body. He ate fish. In Matthew 26, 29, he says, this is at the Last Supper, when he drank the wine and ate the bread, and he says to the disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I think that means that there will be a day when he will drink the fruit of the vine. I don't think this is just figurative language. I mean, Jesus had a resurrected body, and he continues to exist in that body. He didn't set that aside. It was glorified and resurrected body as we will have glorified, resurrected body. And 1 Corinthians 15, 26, I just put up there to remind ourselves that death is not like a, you know, some. it's not like a, a good thing where we can escape from the troubles of this life. Um, I mean, it does end our struggle with sin, which is good, but it's actually an enemy. You know, Paul calls it an enemy. It's the last enemy to be destroyed. So the New Testament writers, they don't picture us escaping from a physical world, but actually a glorification and a transformation of the physical world. You see this come together in Romans 8, probably better than anywhere else, uh, where where Paul's looking all the way back to creation, and he's reflecting on the fact that creation is now not the way it was supposed to be, that there's things that are broken, we're broken, the world is broken. And he says that creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In verse 19. Verse 20, he says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see the thing that he describes creation in verse 19 as waiting with eager longing. In in verse 22, he describes the creation as groaning under with the pain in the pains of childbirth. Um, In 21, he said it's in bondage to corruption, subjected to futility. I mean, these are for Paul, creation was a good place that God made, and now because of sin and, and the curse, it's in this bondage. But it will not always be that way. That's his point here, that there is a coming day when the creation will be set free from its bondage. It's waiting with eager longing. And it's interesting, he points to what it's waiting for. The way he describes it in verse 19 is for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, it's probably not the way I would have finished that sentence if 
You know, sometimes I like to think if I understand Paul, like, well, if, how would I finish his sentence for him? But I wouldn't have finished it that way. So I probably would have said, you know, for the eager longing of the revealing of God or the glory of God. or But he actually says the revealing of the sons of God. You and I, the children of God, who have been adopted into his family. There is, you know, verse 17 before that, he said that we are going to be glorified with Jesus. Um, which is what he's saying also in 21. There's... The creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That glory that we fell short of. Remember he says in Romans 3.23, we fell short of the glory of God. This glorious status that we had, that we were crowned with glory and honor, as he said in Psalm 8, to, to, be the, to rule over the, over the creation. Creation is, is longing for the day when that will be restored, and we will obtain that, that glory. So, I guess what I wanted to get away from Romans 8 is just remembering that this world is not just something that we're going to escape. That, you know, we'll say sometimes, and I, the, the sentiment is, is valid, but, you know, this world is not my home. I'm, I'm looking for a better country, which there is, you know, Hebrews talks about Abraham looking for a better country. But there's a, a tension that we need to feel here in that there is both... There is both a judgment coming on this world. We are exiles here. Uh, this world is, in a sense, is not our home in that it's so shaped and corrupted by sin that our institutions, our governments, our, our society, is just it's a, it's a corrupted place that is not filled with the glory of God. And in that sense, the world is not our home, but we were made for something different. But it's not as though the world will just be completely destroyed and then we're going to go live as some, other, as some other type of being that, you know, floating around in the sky. That we're made as humans. We're made, and creation itself is going to be set free from its bondage to sin and corruption, which is hard. It's hard to get specific about what that will be like. In a revelation, we see visions of that. In, the, in Revelation 21 and 22, of a new heavens and a new earth. And it's, it's hard to go, go beyond much speculation as far as the specifics there. And I think that's intentional. I mean, we're not meant to know that. We're meant to look, you know, we... Who hopes for what he sees? We hope for it. We wait for it with patience. There's certainly still mystery involved in that. But it won't be to become something other than human. And part of that being human is being made in the image of God as, as workers, as, as those who will reign with Christ. So I think we see both. both there's a, both a tension. If you look through the New Testament, you see both a discontinuity with the world, that the world is a... There's evil here, and it, everything that's wrong in the world is going to be undone. Sin is going to be destroyed. There's a final day of judgment. But then also continuity, in that the world, human, we will still exist. We're not going to become a new person. You know, Adam Hansel is still going to be Adam Hansel, a glorified, renewed, perfect Adam Hansel, but he's still going to be Adam Hansel. And, you know, for each one of you. <laughs> and the world will be renewed. It will be, as you said in Revelation, a, a, um, a new heavens and a new earth. You know, it, work in that context, it's hard to imagine what it would be like because today, you know, we think we, when we experience work in this world, it's so filled with sinful, you know, you name it, I mean, it's competition or pride or corruption or pointlessness and, and drudgery. There's so much in our work that is the result of sin, that it's hard for us to understand what that would be like. But I think that 
we need to hold these things together, both that everything that's wrong in the world will be judged and done away with, but it will be to create a new and glorified world where we will serve God and, and rule with Him in this new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, you might, just as a, I'll do this quickly, but, you know, in First John, Paul, John says that the world is passing away. Along, but I think what you we need to understand in John, you know, look at verse 16. He says, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So he's not necessarily talking about the good creation that God made, but everything that is corrupted the world, the sinful desires, the pride of life, when he's when John refers to the world, you know, wor- words have a range of meaning. They don't always mean the same thing. You have to read, you have to understand the context. So, the world, meaning all that's sinful in the world, will will pass away. But it, God will make a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, where we will we will serve Him in in, in bodies. So, just in summary, then we've seen that work has inherent dignity. We see that we work has inherent dignity because God works, because the world that God made is good, because we are made in the image of God with the intent that we would be like Him as workers. We'll get into this more later, but this is really the basis for the doctrine of vocation, that God calls us to do certain work, and that we serve Jesus and others through our work. So just some points of application that you might take with you or, or think about as they apply to your life. You know, if, if all work has dignity, if we're made in the image of God and work itself has dignity, then we have freedom to seek work that suits our gifts and passions. You know, we're all made differently. None of us is going to image God completely or perfectly. You know, we saw many different ways that God works, from physical to the mental, or physical, mental, and everything in between. So if your passion is to be neurosurgeon, then great, you can do that to the glory of God, but if it's to knit or, you know, something that might be looked at as ordinary or inferior even in our society, that even that um, can be done to the glory of God, that it has a, a dignity in it. So we can have dignity also in our work with whatever we are given to do in our life circumstances. You know, I'm, I've lived long enough now, many of you probably have, that, to know that Oftentimes your job is not what you thought it would be. You don't you didn't end up in the dream job, the career that you thought you would be doing when you were 18 and dreaming about, you know, the world and all that it could be. Um, but you can still have dignity in your work that it's it still images God whether it's not whether or not it's what you thought it would be. We also have no basis for feeling superior or inferior when we consider our work, our vocation in comparison to others. You know, this is so common, you probably do this, I do this without even thinking about it necessarily, but you, you assign value to, to people based on their, the status that they have in their work. If, they're, if it's something that's perceived as prestigious or difficult, or, or if it's something that's per- perceived as common. You know, we, we ha- sinfully have a, have a tendency to, to feel superior or inferior, and to always be comparing ourselves with others. And we see from this doctrine of the image of God in all of us that we really have no basis for that. That's a sinful perception and comparison of others. And then lastly, we wait eagerly for the renewal of all things when we will reign with Christ, which, as I said, it's hard to be specific about what that will be like, but I think it will involve us using our faculties as, as humans to, to reign, to work, to, to take dominion in some capacity, although 
it's hard to go beyond much speculation there. Any questions? Comments? I still think my wife's going to work for you, Fair enough. <laughs> I like the, the fact that it comes out that whatever you do, when you do it um, in God's, for God's glory, for God's power, there's fulfillment, there's satisfaction, there's mm-hmm. dignity. And mm-hmm. I like noticing that around me when people do whatever they're doing when they do it well and they yeah. do it um, with the right attitude mm-hmm. it it elevates them I, I, I saw a perfect example one, one time I went to the bowling alley put I, a kid's birthday party or something and there was one guy that worked in there who ran the entire place <laughs> including making the snacks he was amazing to watch um, he was an amazing human being with a multitude of skills and I, when I realized that he was the only employee there and the whole place was running and he, he just had a smile on his face and then if you just start noticing that when, and, and just kind of comment on that with people who, who yeah. are doing their, their work with that um, attitude it's, it's a beautiful thing yeah, yeah it is and that yep. helps you in your own whatever you're doing every day that seems so right. icky. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Sometimes it's hard for me to hold attention to you know the fact that everything around this in this world is falling mm-hmm. apart. Yeah. Right. I feel like I'm just trying to keep the plates all spinning, <laughs> but it keeps on getting messed up. And sometimes I have this. You know, all this vanity, all this vanity. I've been working all this, and what's going to happen? It's all going to go to somebody that's going to squander it, or you know, like, what yeah. are you doing? Like trying to <laughs> keep it all going, and it's not really, it's not really. It's, it's about following God, obeying Him, and bringing Him glory in what I'm doing, even though, yeah, the world is going right. Yeah, and there's right, and there's dignity in the what you're doing, even if, even if you're part of a system, you know, a country that's falling apart or drifting away, or, I mean, that God, I mean, God doesn't judge as we judge, so we tend to look at the, we're utilitarian. We like to look at the results, like, well, what what do I have to show for it? You know, what did I accomplish? And if you know our institution or society or government falls apart, we think, well, it was a waste. But God doesn't judge it that way. I mean, he's looking at the work that we're doing for its own sake, even, that it has dignity. Whether or not um, sin or others corrupts it, or um, um, whether it falls apart after we retire. (laughs) All right, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your mercy toward us. We thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Thank you that we Um, have your word that gives us guidance for life and as each of us whether in the home or in the workplace goes to um, to work even tomorrow pray that you would help us to see that the dignity that we have is being made in your image just doing the work that you've given us to do and help us to do it joyfully as unto you to see that even in, in so doing we are not only being true to our design as humans but we have an opportunity to serve jesus And we pray that you give us joy even in in the challenges that we're going to face even tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.